open the door to a spacious auditorium and walk in. The sound of your footsteps echo in the large room. You sit down at the judging panel next to two other judges and the computer screen in front of you and the large machine attached to it turns on, showing an animated video of a robot. Hello. Welcome to the fifth annual Alan Turing Conference. You were selected among extremely qualified human candidates to be part of this Turing test. The Turing test has been around for over 50 years and has continuously tested the ability of machines to communicate with humans. It also may suggest whether they have a consciousness or not. We thank you for your contribution to this research study. The computer screen turns off. You look at your fellow judges and they look at you. All three of you nod and smile at each other simultaneously. Then the computer screen turns back on, this time with instructions. The Turing test has been around for 50 years and today you will make history. You are given three subjects, Alan, Ben, and Cody, whom you will take turns communicating with through text. Two are human, one is a machine. At the end of three hours, you will make a decision about which one is a machine and if the machine passes the Turing test, it will be the first ever machine to do so. You took a deep breath and thought to yourself, if the machine wins, is it the end of humanity? Might as well replace our brains altogether then. With no time left to think, your phone notification goes off in your pocket. You take it out and on it is a new message. Hello. How are you today? In his 1950 paper entitled Computing Machinery and Intelligence, Alan Turing, a famous mathematician and computer scientist, started by considering the question, can machines think? However, the words machine and think were hard to define clearly, so he replaced the question with one based on a much more practical scenario. Can they communicate with humans on the same level? The game has since become more widely known as the Turing test. If a machine passed the Turing test and was subsequently implanted into a human brain, what would happen? To answer this question, let's start from the very beginning with the advent of artificial intelligence in the 21st century. Over the past 20 years, AI development has changed a lot in terms of how machines function. Traditionally, researchers have tried to write algorithms that recognize predetermined shapes as sets, uh, sets of shapes as specific objects. A dog, for instance, is something with a pointy nose and a tail. The natural variations of a dog, however, would require an impossibly complex index of object classes. Instead, in recent years, projects such as ImageNet, which is a project started and developed at Stanford, treats machines like toddlers, which learn and see and understand through millions and millions of experiences. Neural networks are used to imitate the human brain and to facilitate machine learning. As artificial intelligence has taken center stage, so has the philosophical questions surrounding it. The questions being asked a half century ago by Alan Turing have resurfaced. 
According to the research paper published in the National Center for Biotechnology Information, or NCBI for short, by Kevin Warwick and Huma Shah at Coventry University in the UK, the Turing test is simply a test of a machine's communication ability. It is interrogated by a human and is directly compared with another human in a parallel fashion with regard to human communication abilities. Therefore, it involves only one aspect of human intelligence, as pointed out by the father of modern linguistics, Noam Chomsky. If a machine passes the Turing test, it exhibits the ability to communicate. No more. However, the test became linked inextricably with the concept of thinking. As you can imagine, a philosophical argument ensued concerning how one can tell if another human is thinking. This brought out about a multitude of arguments between philosophers and AI researchers as to the test's meaning and gravity. Today, we have machines that can beat out the most advanced chess players, such as AlphaGo. But just because a super intelligent AI could solve problems that even the smartest humans are unable to solve, does that make it conscious? Could it feel the pangs of grief or the burning sensation of curiosity? Does it learn in the same slow analytical process that we do with the doubts and the thinking and everything in between? First, let's define consciousness. According to David Calmers, a NYU professor prominently known for his works in the philosophy of mind, it's the feeling of being alive. He states that any system that has a subjective experience is technically conscious. Professor Eric Schwitzgebel, a professor of philosophy at UC Riverside, who I was lucky enough to get to interview, sums up the different views of consciousness in a more concise way. I would say that there are three main approaches in philosophy. One, the more traditional approach and uh, often associated with traditional religions is a dualist approach, according to which there's an immaterial soul. Uh, maybe God is responsible for the existence of the immaterial soul. And then if you would have a, uh, and that immaterial soul is responsible for your being conscious, right? This would explain how you might continue to be conscious after your body dies, right? Mm -hmm. There's an afterlife, yeah. right? So, you know, if that's going on, God would have to put one of these immaterial souls in a computer, and, you know, it's not clear how or why uh, that would be the case. So that leaves two main remaining approaches. One would be something like a biological approach, and the other would be something like what's called functionalism. And on a biological approach, it really matters that you have a brain, right? The brain is really the center of it, and a brain is very different from the inside of a computer in lots of ways. You could never have something anything like our digital computers made out of silicon that would be biologically similar to a human brain. Uh, and so if consciousness requires that, then all you have in a computer would be kind of if-then instructions implemented in silicon. And then a third view, functionalism, and this is, look, what really matters is informational relationships and input-output relationships. You don't need a soul. You don't. It doesn't matter what your biological substrate is. If you've got an entity, that kind of responds to the world in the same way an intelligent entity like us does, then we should say it's conscious. Uh, so there's still a lot of debate among those views. It's not settled, but those are the three main uh, outlooks. 
These three views of what consciousness is then defines the capabilities of machines to gain it, or not. The first two views, the religious and the biological views, would probably not allow for mechanical systems to gain consciousness. In that case, can machines ever gain consciousness, or is that even a requirement to surpass humans? According to Professor Susan Schneider at the University of Connecticut, the conversation of superintelligence surpassing human intelligence is much more complex than that. What I was suggesting in the book is a wait-and-see approach to machine consciousness and testing machines as they become far more intelligent. And I raised a bunch of scenarios to try to cast doubt on the idea that consciousness was an inevitable byproduct of sophisticated computation. And that scenario um, in which a supercomputer outmodes consciousness because um, consciousness, at least in the case of humans, is slow and deliberative and it just doesn't need it, is one such scenario. To her, a superintelligent AI may bypass consciousness altogether. In humans, consciousness is correlated with learning tasks that require concentration when we think it is processed in a slow, sequential manner. A superintelligent AI may not even need the mental faculties that are associated with conscious experience in humans in order to surpass expert-level intelligence in every respect. In addition, Camilo Miguel Signorella of Oxford University's Department of Computer Science writes in his research paper, Can Computers Become Conscious and Overcome Humans?, that machines cannot be machines if their consciousness is the equivalent of humans, as the bias and subjectivity of the human consciousness is what separates us from being machines. To him, trying to achieve machines that are capable of beating humans in terms of consciousness implies that computers will never completely exceed human capabilities. And second, if the computer were to do it, the machine would never be considered a computer anymore. Therefore, consciousness could be outmoded. What both Camilo, Miguel, and the professors I sat down with have in common is that they believe consciousness is not what is driving AI advancements, and probably never will be. The cornerstone of machine learning is not based on the same subjective, carbon-based system we know of. Because of that, it will probably be able to achieve much more than humans do in computational abilities and creativity, but only humans are capable of subjectivity and bias. But what if, instead of replacing our entire brain with a machine, we merge with a machine? As humans are becoming more and more attached to their digital devices, it may not even require machines to become much more advanced. Maybe we are the ones becoming more and more mechanized. The future, according to Kevin Warwick, will likely become more down to this idea. Either a future with robots surpassing humans, a very, very dangerous scenario, according to him, or a future with enhanced humans thanks to robots. Ultimately, we'll, we will link much more closely with artificial intelligence and use that to improve how we are. This perspective has become a prominent community of people calling themselves transhumanists. But what is transhumanism and what does it get right and maybe not so right? Professor Schneider comments on this with her viewpoint. So 
as a young person, when I was your age, I was a transhumanist. And in a way, I still am. I just mm-hmm. don't agree with um, the more futuristic elements of the transhumanist vision. So I think that um, the transhumanists are right in emphasizing um, that longevity and medical science, I mean, you know, we, what we want ultimately for the human flu- future is for people to flourish through the use of science. And I love the idea of radical life extension, even um, cognitive and consciousness enhancements. What I disagree with, though, is how to get there from here. So the transhumanists tend to tout more futuristic and speculative enhancements, and I accept. So, for example, uploading um, right. Maybe, you know, hundreds of years from now, something like that will be possible. But I still don't think that it would constitute a form of survival. So if the idea is survival um, mm-hmm. and radical life extension, then right. I don't think the person uploaded would really be them. In addition to this interesting perspective, Professor Schutzgebel also has an interesting viewpoint on replacing our brains, which includes a cautionary tale about eugenics. But let's say that we can, you know, replace ourselves with conscious machines or upgrade our upgrade our brains or like swap out part of your brain for an improved, you know, like oh let's plug in French that would be cool to know right or whatever. Um, you know that sounds that sounds good to me. I mean I like the general idea, but there is one important caution here uh, that's easy to neglect, which is we want to be careful about not undervaluing lives that don't meet the kinds of criteria of, say, intelligence, beauty, morality, all those things we privilege, right? Mm Because as you you might know, the history of eugenics is that people have said, well, you know, wouldn't it be better for humans to be better? (laughs) So we should encourage people who are beautiful and intelligent and smart and athletic and, you know, all that to, to breed and pass their genes down. (laughs) And I like the idea of enhancing ourselves and taking advantage of those opportunities, but we also don't want to create, we have to be very careful about creating a scale of the value of different kinds of lives on which enhanced lives are regarded as more valuable and more worth protecting. He says that there is a connection between eugenics and transhumanism. Both ideas are grounded in the essential point of improving the human race. Therefore, we have to be very careful about the lessons learned from the history of eugenics because the similar ways of thinking at its worst may invite a similar way of or type of mistake. So he's not saying transhumanism is altogether bad, but we have to be more aware about the ethical issues involved with this kind of advocacy for machines. In spite of everything, if we look at that possible future with enhanced humans, we need to be techno-optimists. We will likely become more and more mechanical, but that's already a trend in society. We can't go a day without using the internet, and once we latch onto the efficiency of digital information, we would rarely go back. With a few more generations of internet-breeded humans, we will have essentially become absorbed in technology to a point of no return. But that does not necessarily mean we will become less and less dictionary definition human. If anything, artificial intelligence, from Google, Siri, to Snapchat, 
have enhanced the speed at which we learn and process information, forming our subjective, biased, and flawed human judgments at a pace faster than ever before. The future looks like it will need humans to think like humans and machines to be machines. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Exploring Roots. I hope you enjoyed listening to me and the professors talk about AI and the ethics behind it. I will see you next time on Exploring Roots.